0: Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston-Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home-front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, this is Sarah. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the rationing of America's second obsession after sugar, and that would be coffee. I'll be chatting, aka gushing, about my favorite wartime cookbook, and I'll be highlighting the wartime recipe from the grandmother of a fellow World War II reenactor pal of mine. I'm really excited about today's episode. I myself am not a coffee drinker. So I asked my lovely followers on Instagram for their feelings about coffee. And this is what they told me. Hearthstone Fables said, I didn't like it at all until having kids. I've adjusted to the flavor, but I mostly like it for the morning routine aspect. Vintage Homemaker said, I adore coffee. I have a percolator and love it strong and black. Three exclamation marks. (laughs) No sugar or milk here. I have two cups to start my day. It's my favorite thing to look forward to when I wake up. Author Anne McTavish said, For me, I simply enjoy the flavor, with cream and sugar, of course, and it's a nice warm pick-me-up in the mornings. Sophisticated Lady 1935 said, I positively love my morning coffee. It's so necessary for me and a joy, too. I can't really feel like I've started my day properly if I haven't had my morning coffee. I always love to have an afternoon coffee, too, when I'm sewing or knitting or reading. That's when I wax poetical about it. And finally, sweet spoken said morning coffee time is one of my favorite times of day. I love it. And I love the ritual of it. I would have a very hard time with that part of wartime rationing. I really like what they said. And it gave me a good idea about the general feelings of coffee, because you can definitely see a common thread in their feelings about this morning beverage, or in some cases, afternoon beverage, um, So for my exploration of coffee rationing, since I don't drink coffee, I focused on the coffee substitutes, like trying those. Um, And I did try a few modern ones out. I tried Cafix, Piro, and Ticino. And Cafix was disgusting. (laughs) Piro was okay. And Ticino is actually one I like. It's it's in an actual tea bag, but it tastes, I guess, a lot like coffee, apparently. It's a a really pleasant drink. Now, I also tried Postum, and that is the historical one that I'll be talking about a little bit later in this episode. What I found out is that coffee substitutes aren't new. They had coffee substitutes in the American Civil War. They had things like wheat bran, peanuts, sweet potatoes, rye, corn, watermelon, persimmon and okra seeds. One Confederate recipe has you make coffee using ground-roasted acorns. Things were a little different by the time we get to World War II. But now let's talk about the coffee rationing. Why was it rationed? Well, first of all, like we've talked about with the rationing of sugar, there was a lack of ships available to ship the coffee. There was also a danger from the U-boats, as always. But the advancement of sonar technology helped our ability to attack the U-boats and end their reign of terror in the Atlantic. It was still a danger... Just the threat was much less. Now I'm going to go off on a tiny little tangent here because I found this amazing Life magazine article from February 8th, 1943. And it talked about how Brazil, which was at the time the world's largest supplier of coffee, and it shows a picture of a warehouse in Sao Paulo, Brazil, stacked to the ceiling with bags of green coffee. This warehouse was the largest in the world And it's showing that it's holding its capacity of 2,800,000 bags. There was not a shortage of coffee to be had. It was just the transportation problems of getting it there. In this article, besides talking about how Brazil had all this coffee available, but not the ability to get it out, to export it, it talked about creative ways that they were using to use up this coffee because they were worried... If there was so much left at the end of the war, it would ruin their economy. So they're using the coffee as fertilizer. In this one picture, the caption says, As fertilizer, coffee is doused with water and lime. The inventor of this outrage is Ronaldo Elvis Lima. The green berry has tiny cells filled with a volatile oil. Then there's another picture that shows these men on top of this giant mound of coffee beans outside and it says two million pounds of what it takes to keep you awake ease fatigue speed up your pulse and elate without depressing is wet down to make it ferment for fertilizer and then it shows this other picture of two men shoveling coffee beans into a furnace it says as fuel coffee is denatured with petroleum here it is thrown into the furnaces of armor and co's sao paulo plant which burns about 1500 bags a day it burns well And then it shows another picture of a factory plant. And it says, as a plastic, coffee has its oil and caffeine removed, becomes a compressible powder that makes tables, chairs, pipes, telephones. That, I have never heard of a coffee plastic. I found this so fascinating. I tried to do a Google search on coffee plastic and found nothing. So, um, yeah, further research maybe, to ensue. And uh, if you know anything about coffee plastic, please let me know. Okay, so back to reasons for why coffee was rationed. I was actually all set to record this episode when I went down a little rabbit hole of research I had not thought of. And so this is um, a, a reason for rationing that I had not come across before. But in one newspaper article, it quotes an OPA official saying that coffee rationing was brought on by the hoarders buying more than they could use. So essentially hoarders caused coffee rationing to have to happen. Now I am going to be going into hoarding and the black market in a later episode, but I will touch on it briefly here because it did affect quite a lot about coffee rationing and people's mentality about coffee. I think it's very important to to study. Now they had run across similar issues with sugar and people hoarding sugar but I think for some reason coffee was just people went crazy. So rumors of rationing led people to hoard coffee and when I say people they usually blamed it on the housewives because they did most of the shopping. So they hoarded coffee but this was pointless because coffee doesn't have a very long shelf life once it's been ground so it doesn't keep well. Some grocers in St. Louis, Missouri thought they solved the problem of hoarding by opening the cans people bought. They'd notice the same people coming in like four or five times a week buying coffee. Obviously, way more than they could possibly drink in a week's time. So what they started to do was as soon as they bought the can of coffee, the grocers would open it and therefore breaking the seal in these hermetically sealed cans forcing the people to use it within two weeks because that was how long the coffee would last before going rancid. And as soon as these people who were coming in frequently found out that they were being made to open the cans, they stopped coming in for coffee. But what the newspaper was very careful to point out was that by opening this can, this was illegal by the on the grocer's side. Because not only are they forcing the customer to o- open it. Well, they're the ones opening it, not even the customer. But also there was a different price for sealed coffee in a can versus loose coffee. Loose coffee was cheaper. And so by opening the can, the OPA was saying, this is now actually a loose coffee that you're selling. So not a perfect solution, but for these grocers, it seemed to work well and it stopped the hoarders coming in. (laughs) Also, I found one reference for one grocer who had his best, most frequent customers sign up on a list, and he'd call them first when the coffee shipment came in. So a little favoritism, but um, just making sure that the people who were his most loyal customers were sure to get their share of coffee. And then I wish I could find where I read this. It was in some um, Life magazine article or a newspaper article, but there was a story of a woman who... Hoarded coffee like crazy during this coffee rationing period, and she would go to all the stores and get as much coffee as she could. She would then also go to her neighbors, begging for bits of coffee here and there. And by the end of coffee rationing, they found she had over a hundred pounds of stale coffee in her house, not drunk, just in her cupboards and rancid. It <laughs> just so crazy. But see, that just, I think that really shows you how the fear of not being able to have something that they depend on, just it kind of, people just, they behave differently. All right. So now we're going to answer the question, how was coffee rationed? Coffee rationing officially started November 29th, 1942. Stamp number 27 in ration book one, remember ration book one was started out as for sugar rationing. Well, stamp number 27 was the first stamp designated for coffee, and this was chosen due to how easy it was to tear out. It was in the lower left-hand corner, so it was just super easy to tear out. And the next coffee stamp designated was number 28, which is right above it. This first stamp, number 27, expired midnight of January 3rd, 1943, and subsequent stamps were valid for specific periods later announced by the OPA. People who didn't have Ration Book 1 which was issued May 1942, due to having an overstock of sugar, could apply for ration book one with the appropriate amount of sugar stamps removed in advance. Coffee rationing was for ages 15 and up, and they checked the books to make sure they were of age. If groceries were delivered, the delivery person removed the stamps. Penalties were posed for people whose books were missing stamp number 27 for those under 15 years of age. So no cheating the system here. One stamp was good for five pounds. You could purchase all the coffee allowed for your family, but they encouraged you just to buy what you needed because of that hoarding problem like we talked about before. When the U-boat battles in the Caribbean were at their height, coffee rationing was reduced to one pound in six weeks. And before that, it was one pound in five weeks. They encouraged you to store your coffee in the refrigerator And I'll actually have a picture of a glass coffee jar that I own on my blog so you can see what that looked like. Coffee was the first restricted food to go back to pre-war status, so it was the shortest rationed food commodity. Rationing ended July 29, 1943, so not even a year. This was due to the decline of the effectiveness of the U-boats, plus the Allies helping to protect shipping lanes. And also, Hitler needed his U-boats closer to home by that point in the war. So towards the end of coffee rationing, one pound was allowed per every three weeks. So the amount was slowly increasing. After the rationing had ended, they still were encouraging people to not make runs on the stores for coffee, to still just buy what you needed, because there was a threat that they would have to put coffee back under rationing if people went crazy again. So they were telling the public, this is in your hands. You can have your coffee and as much as you'd like, as much as you normally would drink, but don't go crazy and hoard more than you use. So as we can see, coffee was extremely important to Americans in World War II. It was for energy, it was for comfort, and it was for routine ritual, just like today. We talked a little bit about how Americans dealt with coffee rationing. We talked about the hoarding. But next, we're going to talk about some fun stuff called coffee stretchers. This was one or two parts coffee to one part stretcher. So you would buy the coffee stretcher separately and then add it to your coffee ration. Coffee stretchers were made from chicory, chickpeas, barley, and malt. There was also a kind that was cocoa blended with some cereal grains. That wasn't very popular. And these coffee stretchers they claimed that they stretched your coffee cup to you know if you're used to having two cups a day you could have four cups a day so i have these ads right here that i'd like to read to you because they're really fun there's this one called alabama coffee stretcher the product that makes your coffee go twice as far it's scientifically prepared by the Alabama Coffee Company in Sheffield. It is blended and roasted like coffee, looks like, smells like, and tastes like coffee, yet it is made from pure grain and vegetable products. It makes a perfect drink by itself, but for best results, mix it with your favorite brand of coffee half and half. Ask your grocer today about this amazing product. Another of their ads says, under the coffee rationing program, you can only have one cup of coffee a day. Would you like to have and enjoy two cups a day? There's another ad for Albers Coffee Stretcher. It says that one pound of Alberly coffee plus one pound of Victory Coffee Stretcher equals 100 cups or three cups a day when you blend one pound of Albers Coffee Stretcher with a pound of Alberly coffee. Now, the coffee substitutes, so they had coffee stretchers and then there were coffee substitutes. And the most famous one is Postum. The funny thing about Postum, though, is that they say blatantly in their ads they are not a coffee replacement. They are their own drink. And they had quite a few ads with people saying, oh, I've always thought Postum was just a substitute for coffee. But recently a friend told me that Postum was not a substitute for anything, that it was just a perfectly swell drink in its own right. So they try it and they're pleasantly surprised and now they love it. So... I wanted to give Postum a try. I had never had it in my life, but my father-in-law is an avid drinker of Postum. So I called him up, asked him for some tips, and also told him that I had gotten Postum. He was very proud of me (laughs) because my husband is not a fan. How he drinks Postum is mixed with hot cocoa mix, which is pretty awesome. So I tried Postum plain the first time, and I found it very pleasant, just like the ads say. But I'm not a coffee drinker, so I can't say, you know, like, oh, this would definitely replace my morning cup of coffee or anything. But it's a really nice drink, and I've since enjoyed it several nights because it's cold, and it's just a nice change from tea. I'll have a picture on my blog of a vintage Postum tin that I have. It's a very tiny tin. It only holds four ounces of Postum. This does not seem like very much, but on the can it claims that it makes 50 cups. That's a lot. It's actually a really good deal nowadays though it's uh it's kind of pricey to get i think you can only find it on amazon that's where i got it but it it does last a long time like i've been using it a lot you just use a teaspoon at a time and it makes a nice cup i really like what the ad says it says what's more postum is a wonderful drink for the whole family children as well as grown-ups for it contains no caffeine no stimulant of any kind Have you tried Postum recently? If not, get curious. Discover why more and more families are turning to Postum. Discover how economical it is to buy Postum today. P.S. I promise this podcast episode is not an advertisement for Postum. Today's featured cookbook is Thrifty Cooking for Wartime by Alice B. Wynn-Smith. This cookbook is my absolute favorite in my entire collection because of how unique it is. She has a very different approach to wartime cooking. That is just, it really speaks to me because I think this, the way she suggests is the way I naturally cook myself. I'm going to read to you the inside flap of this cookbook. It gives a very good summary of what this cookbook is about. It says, With the realities of war at our very shores, it behooves all Americans to tighten their belts and play their parts well. And the part to be played by housewives in their own kitchens is no less important than that of the workers in the munitions plants or of soldiers in tanks. But in order to do her part, the housewife, like the soldier, needs a new set of rules. This book sets down in concrete and usable form many of the most important new rules for wartime cooking. In reality, they are not new, but rather the best and thriftiest of the old ones. Some of them date from previous wars, the First World War, our Civil War, and even the New England kitchens of revolutionary days. To make these rules particularly easy to follow, the book gives just a few basic recipes in the various fields of cooking. Recipes which are practical, economical, easy to change. Then following each basic recipe are thrifty changes, which will add unlimited variety and meet the emergency by using foods that are on hand in the cupboard or most readily available in the local market. From these variations and suggestions, any woman can adapt her menus to whatever conditions arise. And the woman who has once started using this basic recipe principle of planning and preparing her cooking will find that it continually suggests new ideas, a thing quite out of the ordinary in a cookbook. With limited sources of supply in many food fields and with rationing, conservation, and elimination of unnecessary waste, the orders of the day, every woman will find Thrifty Cooking for Wartime an invaluable aid in planning her strategy on the home front. So this cookbook, unlike so many other cookbooks that I have that have menus and things like that, the menus in other cookbooks give specific suggestions. So like make ABC for breakfast and this and this and this for lunch and this for dinner. And then they have that planned out for every single day of the week, or even for a whole month. And they do say, you know, to adapt if you don't have something, but they don't really, you know, they give a few suggestions, but you're kind of left out on your own. It's not really teaching you the tools to be more flexible. And that's what this cookbook does. It gives you just the very basic recipes, and then a bunch of thrifty changes. And like it says on the flap. By practicing that, you'll actually come up with your own thrifty changes that work for your family. This is very unique. I don't have any other cookbook or have seen any other cookbook that takes this kind of stance. And it's really empowering for a cook. In the book's preface, it says, From these variations and suggestions, any woman can adapt her menus to whatever conditions arise. And to the woman who has once started to use this basic recipe principle of planning and preparing, her wartime cooking, hundreds of other ideas will constantly come. Then, like the general on the field of battle, she can follow and apply the rules of the game effectively to help win this war and make victory the victory of justice for all ours. I love that. And I really love the plug for victory, too. I also like that she says in the foreword that just as necessary as shouldering a rifle is the shouldering of our responsibilities in the home. It is a commanding job. That's right. That's right, ladies. It is a commanding job. I also really love her final words in the foreword. She says, Our meals can still be symphonies while our courage and our smiles maintain the relaxation and refreshment that mealtime should bring to all. Yes, American women are willing to scrub, work in defense plants, drive ambulances, and do hundreds of other things for that victory. But with it all, not one of us will neglect the home to preserve which all this fighting is done. American housewives, generals at home and in defense, I salute you. And as someone who does the majority of the cooking in my home, this just brings warm fuzzies to my heart. I I can just feel how much she understands the tasks <laughs> that make meal planning and cooking so difficult. And I just feel validated. <laughs> I made two recipes from this cookbook that I will be sharing with you on my blog. And yes, I will also have images of this cookbook and the preface and all that cool stuff on my blog as well. It's at victorykitchenpodcast.com. So the first recipe I tried was victory apple pie because, you know, it's coffee this episode. And from what I've seen on movies that feature diners that have pie and coffee. So, (laughs) so victory apple pie. This was one of the weirdest apple pie recipes I have ever tried. And not just it's not really the ingredients so much, it was just the method for making it. So it has six to seven medium sized apples, eighth cup of flour for the thickening, a quarter teaspoon salt, cinnamon, three quarters cup to one cup honey or white caro syrup, and then two tablespoons butter or margarine. So pretty standard, except for maybe the honey corn syrup. Now I learned my lesson from the last time with the sugar rationing recipes. I used honey this time, not corn syrup, because it is sweeter than corn syrup. So you pare and core the apples, slice them thin like normal. You sprinkle the salt over the sliced apples. That was new to me. But then you dredge them with the flour and you lift the apples with your hands until the flour is mixed through, okay? Just go with me here. Then you line a nine-inch pie tin with the pastry and you fill it with the apples, that just have salt and flour on them. Then you pour the honey over the top. Sprinkle with cinnamon and dot with the butter. Then you place an inverted pie tin over the top and bake in a hot oven for 10 minutes, then reduce the heat and bake it for 40 minutes longer. Then you remove the pie tin on top and bake for a little bit more time. And then finally, grated American cheese, maybe sprinkled over the top. Okay, so I've heard of cheese and apple pie. That's not the weird thing. To me, it was... It's an open crust pie, but they're very clever in that they cover the pie with an inverted pie tin, and that keeps all the moisture in there and keeps the apples from drying out. So I was really skeptical about this, but it actually worked out really well, and it was a very tasty pie, just kind of weird preparing it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll have pictures of uh, my uh, my victory apple pie on my blog that you can check out, and... Uh, give it a try because it's, it's pretty tasty. The second recipe I tried, I was very excited for because this is for a homemade cereal beverage, AKA coffee replacement. This is what she says, is the rising price of your favorite beverage working a hardship on your budget? Here is an idea that a dear little old lady gave me during the last world war. She had successfully raised 10 children and this was their favorite family beverage. It is delicious when made with care. Her mother had taught her how to make it during the Civil War. Wow. So this is a Civil War recipe, essentially. And it has traveled through the decades to World War II, and she is bringing it to us to try out. So I did. (laughs) What you do, you take a tablespoon of black molasses and a cup of wheat bran. So you rub the molasses into the bran until it's really well blended and crumbly. Then you put it in a dripping pan or just like a a cookie sheet that has a lip edge around it. And you brown it well until almost black. So I browned mine until it was dark brown. It says in a moderate oven stirring occasionally to prevent burning so i had originally set mine to 325 this was too hot it was starting to smoke that's a bad sign so i lowered it to 300 and about every five six minutes i took it out and stirred it it took it was a long process you know but that's what you need to do in order for it to brown evenly and to not burn and that's very important you don't want it to burn when it's cold you pack it in an airtight container And then you make it the same way as you would boiled coffee or Senka, which was a decaf coffee back then, and served hot or iced. So I invited my friend Laura over to try this with me, and uh, this is our reaction. (laughs) Okay. So today I'm here with my friend Laura, the expert coffee drinker, because I am not one. <laughs> I wouldn't
1: be sure you could go that
0: far. <laughs> well, anyway, you you drink coffee. How often do you usually drink coffee? A couple of times a week. Okay. That's good. Are you mostly a tea drinker then? I'm mostly a tea drinker. Okay, me too. I need my
1: cup of hot Earl Grey in the morning before I can function.
0: Got it. Okay. <laughs> so... But still, Laura is much more experienced than I am. So what we're doing is we're testing the homemade wartime beverage from the featured cookbook from today. So I've got mine that's got milk and sugar in it. Still wartime friendly because I stirred all the sugar crystals in. (laughs) And Laura's drinking hers black.
1: If I'm going to be ration friendly, I just wanted to see how it would taste without milk and sugar
0: and Like the pure taste. The
1: pure taste and it goes back to when I was in high school and worked at a barista at Starbucks and we had to do coffee tastings. You always taste it black.
0: Oh, interesting So you're used to that black flavor of straight coffee
1: I wouldn't go that far It's (laughs) been a couple of years since high school Okay. Two or three Two or three
0: years Yeah, we'll say that (laughs) Okay, so yours is cool enough to drink, right? Yes. Okay, let's go for it.
1: The double strength is a lot better.
0: Yeah, I was going to say mine is a single strength. The recipe says one tablespoon per cup of water, but for Laura's we did two tablespoons. Mine definitely tastes weaker, but it tastes good with the milk and sugar. So yours is better stronger
1: uh, yes i would definitely say two tablespoons per the cup um it still has the nutty kind of molassesy taste which isn't bad it, it adds a little bit of sweetness that your regular coffee doesn't have and it makes up for the fact that you wouldn't have as much sugar Maybe you're saving your sugar ration for there's an upcoming birthday or wedding and you want to save your sugar ration for a cake.
0: That makes sense. I think that's, uh, I think that would be a good uh, replacement for coffee then. You yes. Know, if it, it helps you reduce your sugar intake. So I've been drinking Postum the past couple weeks and this actually tastes a lot like Postum. Which is a scent, I mean, the recipe is just wheat bran and molasses. And that's pretty much what Postum is. So I think mine is too weak. I would like to have the extra tablespoon of the wheat bran mixture in here. So what the recipe says is to prepare it like you would boiled coffee. Since I wasn't an expert coffee drinker (laughs) or maker, I had to think about it for a little while. And it just made me think of the only one time I've tried coffee was at a Civil War event as a reenactor. And I was so cold. I was not prepared. I didn't have any hot drink whatsoever, even just tea or hot cocoa. So I just wandered the camps very pitiful. (laughs) And somebody invited me to try their coffee. And so I did because I was just desperate. And um, it was terrible because they just boil the grounds with the water in the coffee pot and just pour it out in your cup. And it was very gritty. And bitter
1: and I think using a tea strainer or whatever filter you used really helped it because there's no solid chunks in it
0: (laughs) that's true I did use a very fine strainer I tried a coffee filter paper that didn't work but um, yeah I think that really helped because there's none of the brand flakes exactly floaties there's, in there <laughs> there's no floaties. We don't have to strain with our teeth like they did in ye old days <laughs> so well, thank you Laura for being game enough to try this with me.
1: <laughs> You're welcome Sarah. <laughs>
0: Today's story highlight comes from my fellow World War II reenactor friend, Rachel McCullough. This story and recipe is from her grandmother Ferrara, who she called Mom Mom, from her time in an orphanage in Philly during the later part of the Depression and early World War II. And as a teen, right around during the war, her grandmother had a job rolling cigars. Rachel says, this recipe was passed down by word of mouth. My mom-mom started it when she was about 12. She then passed it to my mother at the same age, and when I was 12, my mother passed it to me. The recipe is for potato pancakes. Take leftover mashed potatoes, preferably cold and refrigerated, and with your hands scoop them up and make a small pancake that is about the size of a cookie. Heat butter in a pan. I usually use medium heat. Place the pancake in the pan and season with salt and pepper. Cook in the butter until both sides have a golden crust. If the middle is still cold, place back into the pan with the butter until it is hot. Serve with breakfast meat or eggs. This sounds really tasty. I think I'm going to try this the next time I have some leftover mashed potatoes. All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. I wanted to thank my Instagram followers for all their comments they left about their feelings about coffee. I also wanted to thank my good friend Laura for going on a little adventure with me and tasting a homemade cereal beverage. And I also wanted to thank Rachel for sharing her grandmother's recipe with us. Check out my Victory Kitchen blog at victorykitchenpodcast.com, where you can see images from today's featured cookbook and a whole bunch of other cool uh, pictures and research that I found about coffee rationing. If you liked today's podcast episode, please subscribe, like, and share the ration love. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.